If you followed basketball in the early 2000s, you would know probably of the conflicts between uh, Phil Jackson, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal on the Lakers. Uh, it was highlighted in Coach Jackson's book, The Last Season. I've read a number of Phil Jackson's books. I, I find his leadership to be very helpful in learning principles from him. Uh, I followed uh, the 2004 season very carefully. I actually really never watched basketball for most of my life as a Detroit fan, mainly because I didn't really care about basketball that much, but uh, I missed kind of that little season when uh, the Pistons were really good in the late 80s. My dad was into him. I remember him screaming Bill Lambeer from my living room a lot, but I didn't really follow basketball until 2004. I, I paid very close attention because that's the one winning season I remember paying attention to with the Pistons dominated the Lakers that year. Woo! That was a good year. Those of you who like the Warriors, you should be cheering for that too. Um, but that conflict caused a very talented team to, in the words of Phil Jackson, lose its soul. The tensions were significant. They actually bled into the public view. Eventually Shaq left. He went to Miami. Kobe stayed. Uh, if you follow the, the, the trace of their relationship, you know that over the years, things did get better. Uh, at Kobe's memorial, Shaquille O'Neal said this, a very uh, profoundly, very uh, heartfelt. He said, you, you said yourself that everything negative, pressures, challenges, was all an opportunity for me to rise. So I will now take that sage advice to now rise from anguish and begin with the healing. Just know that we got your back, little brother. I will look after things down here. I will be sure to teach Natalia, Bianca, and baby Capri all your moves. And I promise I will not teach them my free throw technique. <laughs> if you followed basketball, you understand why that's humorous. But there's conflict there. It's not just conflict in professional sports. If you interact with anybody, you will have conflict. Conflicts are a part of life. And as followers of Jesus, because we're redeemed by Jesus does not automatically mean that all of the conflicts that we have in our life will somehow be gone because we know Jesus. In fact, just because we are a redeemed group of sinners doesn't mean all the sin, all the conflict will be smoothed over automatically. Some of the worst pains some of the most significant conflicts that you may experience in your life may come not from those who are outside the church. Sadly, they sometimes come from those inside who profess Jesus, love Jesus, because we are still learning to put off our old self. That's where Paul finds himself in this section of Corinthians. In fact, much of the Corinthian letters have to do with Paul correcting the Corinthians, dealing with conflict. It's been a very long time since we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians uh, this year. Uh, we took a break to look at the Lord's Prayer. And so let me do a quick review. And if you're now just joining us, maybe you joined us the last month and you were with us during the Lord's Prayer. Uh, one of the main ways that we go through the Bible, that we structure our sermons, if you've been here for many years, hopefully you begin to see this. We want to spend a majority of a year in a testament. And so this year, we're primarily in the New Testament. Next year, we're going to primarily be in the Old. doesn't mean exclusively we're only going to preach from that Testament, but we're committed to going through a book primarily in that Testament. And that's our effort to try and teach the whole counsel of Scripture. We want to be able to get through God's Word and allow God's words to define how we hear from Him and shape us in our lives. And so we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're taking it slowly throughout the year. But let me do a quick review since it's been a while. Paul planted the church in Corinth. 
It's a city in ancient Greece. Uh, this church was young, it's growing, it's thriving. And as Paul leaves, though, things get very messy very quickly. That's why he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, he pleads with them to focus on Jesus. There's many issues that are going on. This church is wandering from Jesus in so many ways. And this letter, unfortunately, doesn't fundamentally work with a major issue in the church. He pleads with them to focus on Christ, to stop being misled by these people who are leading them away from Jesus. That letter doesn't work, so he visits them. And this is described as a very painful visit. After that painful visit, he writes a letter that they describe as a letter full of tears. It's a very hard letter. It's a very painful visit. And eventually, because of that visit and that painful, tearful letter, some people begin to turn back to Christ. And that's when Paul writes another letter. That's what we have in 2 Corinthians. So there's actually multiple letters written to the Corinthians. We only have two in our scriptures. And this letter of 2 Corinthians, after this painful visit, after this tearful letter, this letter, 2 Corinthians, in our scriptures, we've been looking at this year. It can be divided in its general structure as having three sections. Chapters 1 to 7 deal with this reconciliation he's trying to have with the Corinthians. Chapters 8 and 9, he begins to deal with a very important practical matter that he's been working out in his ministry, trying to gather a collection from the various churches for the church in Jerusalem as they experience extreme famine. That's what we looked at. That's why it seemed like we were doing a, a special series on generosity. Really, is just going through the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The last section is what we're finding ourselves in now from chapters 10 to 13. And this has a lot to do with correction. It has a lot to do with Paul correcting and sometimes very boldly correcting misunderstanding that is happening in the church. And I think we can learn a lot from the approach that Paul has and some of the correction that he gives because many of us also probably need to be corrected in the same way. We can also learn from his approach of how to correct. He's seeking to confront and correct the, the Christians who are there who are continually being misled away from Jesus. And I think I want to take that perspective today. How do we learn from Paul's approach of biblical confrontation? How to correct people who are being misled away from Jesus. He's, he's talking to a church he loves and he's concerned about them because as they profess faith, he's concerned because they're wandering from the faith and he's going to correct them. He's going to confront them. And I think the way he does it gives us principles of how we can also do the same in our lives because we will find ourselves in conflicts. We will find ourselves in situations where there needs to be some level of correction or confrontation. This happens in our community groups at times. This may happen in our friendships. This may happen with our children. This may happen where we need to receive it from those above us as well. And so what does, what does biblical confrontation look like? There's a lot in this text. I'm going to spend majority of our time actually only in the first six verses. We spend very little time on verses 17 or 7 to 18. But I think there's some principles I'd like us to focus on that are super helpful for us today. The first one is that as we try to confront for the sake of Jesus, drawing people back to himself who are wandering away from him, correcting their wandering from Jesus, we should have a posture of meekness and gentleness. Look at verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. 
Paul's referring actually in verse 1 to the way that others are describing him. They're actually criticizing Paul because when he's with them, he seems kind of humble, even in some ways weak. Uh, but then when he's away, he's writing very bold and aggressive letters. If you've read some of Paul's letters, you probably have this impression that he's a very dominating individual, very strong individual. But then they're claiming that when he's in person with them, he's not that way. And this is kind of inauthentic then. Look at verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no conduct. He writes with authority, but his presence is weak and unimpressive. He doesn't look like a leader. He's not that handsome. He's not that persuasive. He's not a great communicator like the great Greek rhetoricians of the day with their celebrities. He's not like them. According to some who described Paul during this time, they said Paul was a man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, eyebrows meeting, rather hook-nosed. Imagine putting that on your dating profile today. Ever met someone in person that you only interacted with online or maybe you've only read their books and then you met them in person and you found out they were very different? Ever had that experience? That's why they say don't meet your heroes, right? I had a story, I mean, I told this before, uh, back when I was uh, applying for the pe- position of youth pastor at Sunset Church, this was back in 2007. So this is like right around when the iPhone was, you know, first released. And so most people didn't have uh, phones that had cameras on them yet. And if they did, the cameras were quite poor in quality, right? We all had kind of flip phones at the time. Some of us were still using Blackberries at a time. And so, you know, I was applying to the church position and they wanted a picture of me. Uh, and so... I had this like small point-and-click camera and the word selfie wasn't invented yet. And so I didn't even, I didn't ask my roommate to take a picture. I literally set it up on a table and I sat in a chair and took a picture of myself. Okay, at the time, something you have to understand is that uh, aside from school, I happened to also be very into lifting weights at the time. And so I was much stronger looking uh, at the time and I remember one of the counselors for the youth ministry, I came to the church to, you know, interview and meet people and talk. The very first time he looked at me, this person was almost, you know, quite tall. He's like, you, you really surprised me <laughs> how short you are. Because when they saw the picture and I was like sitting in a chair, you know, you can't tell how tall you are, right? And then I was stronger looking at the time. They're like, they thought I was going to be a seven foot like person or something. I, there was a big disconnect. Right? The very first time I, I met John Piper, I was very encouraged because John Piper, if you read his books or listened to him preach, he sounds like a giant. He's like 5'4". So we're almost at the same height. The guy is like, I'm like, I feel very encouraged when I hang with John Piper. When I first met Tim Keller, I'm like, I'm like, this guy is like a giant. He's like, almost feels like seven foot. He's like 6'4 or something. You ever meet someone who doesn't quite meet your expectations? That's what they're experiencing with Paul. And Paul, when he's ministering in person, has a posture. He's intentional about this trying to be meek and gentle. Not because of his personality, actually, but because he says there in verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's intentional. His posture towards correction is one is trying to be like Jesus. And they're criticizing Paul for this. There are people from outside the church who are coming in, and also those from within the church who are questioning Paul's authority, whether he's really apostle or not and questioning the authenticity of the gospel. Because meekness and gentleness were not virtues in their culture, just like they aren't virtues pretty much in our culture today. It's a sign of weakness. 
In Corinth, you got to remember, this is a city that's very influential. It's a city where people come to make it in theater, make it in athletics and sports. This is a place where the values were strength and victory and external success. Very much like the major cities of the world today. It's very much like San Francisco. How many people do you ha- hear from San Francisco who, uh, who have moved to this area and come? I-, I moved to San Francisco to be a servant. I came here to be meek. No, they came here to make it, to make a name for themselves, to build something that makes a difference. And so when they see meekness, they assume that there's something wrong with Paul. Paul wants to deal with this conflict, but not like the world does, though but like Jesus does, meek and gentle. Jesus describes himself with this word and these labels in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's meek and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. Meek isn't a word we use in everyday conversation, and unfortunately it rhymes with weak, And so we make that association in English. But here's a better picture, maybe, to understand the word meek, because we don't typically use this in everyday language. Meekness in the Greco-Roman world was used to describe horses. You ever been around a horse? Have you ever touched, like, the legs of a horse before? What do you sense immediately as you touch the, the legs of a horse? That it's strong. It's in some ways very scary because you can imagine if you stood behind a horse, if it somehow kicked you, you would be seriously injured, if not dead. They're strong, wild horses. If you've been around a wild horse, most of us have never been around wild horses, they're dangerous. But once a horse is broken or domesticated and it's bridled, that's when the ancient Greeks called horses meek. Horses were then described as meek. It doesn't mean they're any less strong. A bridled horse is not weak. It has incredible strength. It's not gone, but it's restrained. It's used appropriately for the purposes of those who are mastering it. That's, that's meekness. It's strength that's appropriately restrained and used in the right context. We sent our girls to horse camp this summer. Mainly because we always saw that camp. If you would drive through the Golden Gate Park around that, you know, 41st Avenue, you see that camp there, the equestrian camp. We sent them there just to experience it once. I'm really glad because then when they get older, they can never complain that we never sent them to horse camp. And I, kids love horses and ponies. They love doing the pony rides. Uh, and it's so interesting to see the dynamics between my two girls and their experiences. Because uh, Malia, she quite didn't, she didn't quite, quite like the camp because the very first hour of the camp, really isn't about riding them at all. It's about caring for them. And caring for them means what? Picking up their poop. And so it's so interesting to hear their experience. My younger one's like, man, like we got to pick up the poop. And like, it's so interesting, right? But that's the last time I touched the horse. And I was like, we went up to them, I picked them up. I'm like, even the small ones that seem like they're not that significant. You touched their legs. I don't want to be kicked with that leg. That's a meek animal. That's what Paul means when he says meek. That's what Jesus means. It's not that Jesus is weak. We know that Jesus has all power, all authority, uses it to serve and love. It's a restrained strength. It's to use the strength not to dominate, but to serve. Jesus is 
meek and he's gentle and lowly. He associates with the low in society, the unimpressive, the people he gets nothing from. He's accessible. That's what Paul is describing. He wants to be accessible to them all. The most important people in this world, the more fame, the more position, the more uh, importance you carry in your position in life, usually in this world, those people are less accessible, less approachable, right? I was having lunch one tw- uh, one th- uh, with Jeanette when we first moved to San Francisco and we used to live in South of Market and we had lunch at this restaurant nearby and at the same time as Joe Montana. I was like, that's Joe Montana. Jeanette's like, who? <laughs> Obviously, my wife didn't watch sports growing up. I, even though I didn't follow the 49ers back then, I knew who Joe Montana was. And I go up to him and I asked to take a picture with him. And he says, no. I'm like, oh, what is this guy? He gave me this. He's not that accessible. And he had a, actually a bad experience. He explained. He was willing to sign something. I'm like, I don't just have a napkin signed. I mean, I want to I get a picture with you. But Jesus, is, he's gentle and low. He's accessible. He is a person with all authority, all power. And he puts himself in a position to be with the low. That's how Paul wants to come dealing with the conflicts with the Corinthians. He's not come boasting of his authority. He's not coming to dominate. He's coming to be a servant. He's trying to listen. He's trying to care. He's trying to serve them. Think about the conflict that you're in now. Or if you're not really in an obvious conflict in your life, maybe you were recently in one in the last year, if you weren't in any conflict in the last year, you are very either peaceable person or very isolated person, right? But think about a conflict that you've been in or you're in. What would be different if you approached that person or persons that you're in conflict with, with meekness, with gentleness, not coming to be right or to get your way, but to serve that person, to approach with humility, as Paul says, thinking of the other's interest more than even your own. That's the posture that Jesus has as he served us. That's the same posture Paul wants to take on himself as he's dealing with this church that's attacking him, that he spent time to love, that he had every right to demand his rights, to use his authority. And he says, I want to come to you, meek. What about our relationships with our children, those of us who are parents? What would it be like as we have conflicts with our youth? conflicts with our young people if we came to our children not using our authority as their parents paul describes we shouldn't exacerbate our children you know what exacerbate means it means to use your authority to dominate them or my wife often corrects me and i need this correction in my life to use my voice or to use my position to get them to be quiet really not meek and gentle i'm trying to dominate them to get quiet in my family which is what i want sometimes What would it be like if we came meek towards our children? What would it be like if we approached the various difficulties we had, not only to be right, but to serve? How would that change the conflicts? What would it change in the conflicts of our church? If you've been in our church for over 20 years, you've seen conflicts in our church. Some of them were quite significant. Some of them were quite public. What would it be like if the elders of our church, and I'm calling all of us out as elders and pastors, if we approached these past conflicts or current conflicts with meekness and gentleness, looking to serve rather than to get our way, even if the way was deemed to be right. And Paul is very much right in the right. 
And even though he's right, he seeks to serve because that's the way of Jesus. It doesn't mean he's a pushover, though. That's the first principle is to approach with a posture of meekness and gentleness. But there's also a place, an appropriate place for boldness, especially to confront false beliefs. He's bold to confront incorrect false ideologies, false beliefs, worldviews that are apart from Jesus. We have to understand, Paul, that's why it seemed like he was flip-flopping all over, but he's not flippant. He's intentional. He wants to care as a shepherd, but he also knows when he needs to be strong and bold, and he's not afraid to do so in the appropriate context. Just like Jesus, he's described as meek and loving little children, right? This is Jesus. He's gentle. He's meek and mild. We know those rhymes. But Jesus is also described as confronting religious leaders of their sin. He's described as flipping over tables. You ever see that recent picture of Jesus flipping over tables? This, this is someone who put in the AI image creation, Jesus flipping over the tables, and they got this image. This is why biblical exegesis is very important. What does flipping mean? Flip, this kind of flipping or that kind of flipping? But Jesus is not just only described as welcoming children. He's confronting religious leaders because they are drawing people away from real life, drawing people away from the truth. Paul, in the same way, is bold, and we need to learn how to be bold to confront beliefs when they take people away from God. Paul's defending his ministry not because he has a bruised ego. It's not like he's like, I, I'm my personally at, you know, feeling this. No, he's, he's seeing the gospel at stake in the conflict. He discerns that salvation of souls is at stake here. It goes on in verses 2 to 3 of 2 Corinthians 10. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. He, he see, even in his description, he doesn't want to come very strong. He wants to be gentle with them. With such confidence as I count as showing against those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. There's a lot here. Maybe it's confusing too of the way that Paul uses flesh in the Bible. Let me kind of give a summary here. He's saying he doesn't want to confront the issues here like those who are attacking him are confronting the issues. He doesn't want to use methods from the world. He's going to confront like Jesus confronts. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to confront. He doesn't want to correct like those who are attacking him, which represent the ways that the world attack. How does the world attack people? They shame people. They cancel people. They smear their character. They, they bully them. They threaten them. That's how the world goes after confrontations. And they usually go after the people. Paul, in fact, one thing that's amazing here, even though he knows who it is that's actually causing problems in the church, he never once names them. That's very important. He, he's going after the issues, not the people. He doesn't even fight according to the flesh. What he means by flesh there, and the Bible uses flesh in various ways. Sometimes it literally means your actual flesh. Sometimes it, it's mean to describe your inner sinful nature. But here I think he's describing kind of the corporate way that the world works, where the world is drawn away from God. He, he's saying here, even though they live in the flesh, he doesn't fight the war according to the flesh, meaning he's living in the reality of this world. He's here, he's present, but he's not going to confront like they do. 
what are these fights about? And this is really important that we grasp this. Because he's confronting, not, he's not going after the people. He's going after the false beliefs that take people from Christ. Look at verses 4 to 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's not fighting people. Okay, I'm going to repeat this again and again because this is what we're tempted to do because we see this all over. If you ever watch a political debate, what do they do? They usually go after the person. You watch the commercials, they go after the person. And so what ends up happening as we see the way that people have public discourse and disagreements, it begins to seep into everyday conversations. So even at family dinners, you begin to see people attack the people, family members, instead of going after the beliefs. Paul's not even naming them. He's going after the beliefs. Crucial principle. That's why I think it's, let me give an encouragement to us in this modern communication age, it's really never wise to get into disagreements online. Never get into disagreements through email. Just don't. And if you happen, if I happen to be CC'd on one in our church, and I have before in various places, I will immediately send one ironic email to stop all the future emails. That's what I'll always do, because I will insist that we have a conversation. But Paul is looking to not destroy people. He's looking to bring people the truth. The conflict is about strongholds. Now, this word is loaded. And if you've been around church, it's a churchy word. And I think people generally use it to describe demonic spiritual powers and generational curses, which has its place. And we even uh, addressed that last week as we learned to pray, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from the evil one. And so there is a place to talk about spiritual strongholds, to, to address how sin can be passed on from generation to generation. There is a place to discuss that, but I, I don't think we should automatically import what we think about the word stronghold into every place. That's why reading the Bible carefully is important. Right? What he means by strongholds, he immediately describes in verse 5. Arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What he means by stronghold here, he's describing false beliefs, ideologies, worldviews that enslave people to sin. And these exist everywhere. In Paul's time, the false beliefs, the strongholds, were anchored in Greek philosophy, Roman mythology. In their, remember, most people until the Enlightenment saw a complete integration of spiritual and everyday life. It's only in the Enlightenment where we see this compartmentalization. The compartmentalization doesn't exist. We may think it exists, but it's always been integrated. So they saw, though, an integration of their religious beliefs into every part of life. That's why they believe Caesar was the son of God, because they saw integration of their Greek mythology, the Roman gods. They saw the integration there. You see, Aristotle believes, he believed, he stated, in his writing, he believes some people were created free and some people were created slaves. And you can begin to see how this seeped into the society. They believed, they wrote down women were inferior. And you can believe how that integrated into society. That's why Christianity is such a countercultural thing. We may think that, and sadly, because of the way that Christians today view and treat women sometimes, and that we do unfortunately treat women very wrongly as the church sometimes. 
But you look at Jesus, you look at Paul, even Paul's ministry, they were uplifting these women in such countercultural ways to their Roman and Greek counterparts. This is what Paul was saying. There are people in the church who have syncretized, began to integrate these beliefs from their culture, these strongholds, into their Christianity and beginning to lead people astray. That's what's happening. This always happens. This is why we need to be careful. This is why the word of God is central. We don't have the exact same strongholds that the Romans and Greeks had that Paul was addressing here, but we have them. They're the ideologies. They're the beliefs. They're the theories. They're the isms. Any ism today that is set up apart and against scripture. The, the word that you maybe mostly use today to describe these strongholds is probably worldviews. They're not just individual beliefs. They're systems of beliefs that shape how you look at things. They're, they're sometimes described as a meta-narrative, a master story that answers life's biggest questions to help you engage in everyday life. They answer questions like, why are you here in the world? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution to the problems in the world? How does life end? These are answered by these bigger story narratives or these worldviews. Paul's bringing them up. He's bold to confront those beliefs, not the people alone, because some are being led astray. And we need to hear this too. We need to actually today hear the same bold confrontation from Paul to today's strongholds. Because I want you to hear this. If you've fallen asleep, wake up for a second. It's okay. If you need a, t- if you need a nap during my sermon, this is a great... Listening to sermons is a great way to fall asleep. I listen to my own. That's how I fall asleep too. So it's okay. But here, wake up for a second. I plead with you. Listen to this. It is entirely possible to uphold orthodox theology, uphold true Christian beliefs, and live by a worldly narrative. Did you hear me? It is entirely possible to good theology and live by a worldly worldview. And people in the church do it all the time. This is the same problem that Anne and Corinth, this is what Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us today, to have biblical theology and live by secular ideologies. This happens all the time. We need to get this, because this is one of the main reasons the church is so weak today. This is one of the main reasons we have lukewarm Christians, Christians who live apart from the mission of God, because you can believe Jesus was a God-man. You can believe Scripture is an inspired word of God. You can believe the church is the redeemed people of God. You can believe those things and still be shaped and live by a completely different story. That's why we need to be bold in our confrontation, not just going, we don't go after the people, we go after, we have to have wisdom and discernment to see the things that are leading people astray, causing the ultimate conflict, is those stories. Let me just bring up two modern ones that I see at play at Sunset Church, at the church in our culture generally. One of the worldviews today that is very much in the culture and sadly also in the church is this worldview of the sovereign self. That is pretty much the American narrative today. The story, the the worldview of the sovereign self. It's this belief that you, your personal desires, your independence 
are the most important and the most important thing is your individual happiness. And so we hear this throughout various cultural mottos like this, be true to yourself. Stories of self-expression and self-discovery are championed and celebrated. You see this play out in all kinds of ways. You see it very commonly through the cultural narrative about sex in our culture, because this comes from this worldview about the sovereign self. You can see glimpses of this in our American culture as you look into it more. You see it begin in some way. It didn't just begin in this time, but you can see a blip of this in the 60s and 70s. Those of you who were adults during the 60s and 70s, you can see how this sovereign self story begins to play out in everyday life when they're freeing sex from the bonds of marriage. That's where it began in our culture. You can see the blip there. It's a story of the sovereign self. You see expressed currently today in pride, which the month of June, you begin to see companies and culture and cities begin to celebrate pride. Now, let me give you a, a quick, careful uh, statement here. I'm not going after individuals there. We, we, we believe in the dignity of people, even when they disbelieve what we believe. But I want to help us think about the stories, that, that Paul is bold to understand stories here. There's a religious narrative that comes from pride. They don't describe it as religion, but it is religion. It's a new religion that's risen up. Risen up. That, that's why if you don't celebrate pride in a culture, in a company, in a situation that celebrates it, you can't just tolerate it anymore. You can't just have disagreements. You actually, if you don't celebrate it, you're considered hateful, narrow-minded, you're canceled, you even may lose your job. Because this story has a gospel. You determine who you are. That's the gospel of that religious framework. Its values are inclusivity and self-expression. Its theology is love is love. Its celebrities or saints are the celebrities of the, that celebrate the same worldview. It's, it has evangelism everywhere. You see its evangelism on storefronts. You see it on TV shows. You see it everywhere. And I'm saying this not to start a culture war. My concern is that you see that there are worldviews that begin to shape people. And they take people away from Christ. And Paul, as he's confronting the issues, the biggest important conflict that he goes after isn't the individuals. He's going after those worldviews that are taking people away. And it's in the church. Many Christians are claiming Jesus, but living in a way that Jesus never encourages. Jesus never encourages self-expression as the highest good. He encourages denial of self. Freedom isn't found by unrestrained sovereignty, but by seeking to pursue the things that God has gifted to us in the ways that he created, that the boundaries are not meant to be broken off, but meant to, meant to give us freedom. That's one way that we should begin to be bold in understanding how to confront worldviews. There's another narrative that exists, and maybe this is the one that I, I sense very much so in our church, in our American church, which not that different from, is this integration and syncretism. What that word means is like you're basically baptizing these worldviews into the church and calling them Christian. We're being shaped by this narrative of the American dream. 
and you could describe that as a lot of different ways, but today the modern take on this, which is very different than the original American dream, is basically described today as economic success and a comfortable life. It's very possible to believe that this is the living word of God and to be more shaped and lived by the American dream. You can begin to see how this seeps into the church and takes people away from Christ because Christians now baptize that into the church and say, this is what is good. This is why you see a rise of Christian nationalism in our culture. This is why you begin to see an integration and confusion of country or kingdom of God because you begin to see this American view being baptized into the church as somehow Jesus ultimately means to use America as the means of carrying out his will in this world. That's not ever in scripture. You can see how this integrates and now confuses people and takes people away from my kingdom come, Jesus' kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is why we have anemic Christians who believe scripture is the word of God, but are more familiar with Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson today. Many Christians syncretize their faith and have good theology and live by the narratives of the world. And Paul says he sees that in the Corinthians through the Holy Spirit. As I'm saying this, he is speaking to us who have the same strongholds at play. Worldviews that are leading people away. This is why we need to be gentle and meek as we approach individuals, but bold when confronting worldviews that are destroying the purity of Christ in the gospel. You know what he does with these strongholds? Look at verse 5. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I don't have time to go into this too deeply. But this is why, even though I, it's entirely possible to have a knowledge of God and live in a different way, you, we still need to not just have like biblical information. We need to have biblical frameworks. We need to dive into understanding and philosophy and wisdom. And we, this is why we need to get into scriptures, learn theology, take classes to begin to read things that give us understanding of how to think through categories that exist in our culture. He begins to destroy the arguments. This is what he's doing. He's demonstrating that in Corinthians. He's teaching us that we need to do that today. How do we begin to speak into the narratives that dominate today of the sovereign self, of the American dream? We need to get into scripture, not just for information memorization, but for information wisdom. So we have learned persuasiveness. We learn how to have beliefs that not only sit in our brains or Sunday service begin to reshape our living. Last, as we learn a principle from this confrontation, verses 17 to 18 have a lot to do with boasting. And I think we need to evaluate our boasting. When you get into confrontation, if you're going to do it in a biblically honest way, if you want to do it in a Christ-honoring way, you have to evaluate your boast. And we all boast. We all boast. We especially, I think, boast when we're in the middle of a conflict. 
that's the word mentioned throughout this section. He's going to address it very specifically in chapter 11. There were super apostles, he's calling them, kind of ironically, uh, attacking Paul. And they're talking about their abilities, their speaking, their strength. And they're calling the question Paul's credibility because he suffers so much. Because if someone really believes Jesus, wouldn't they have a victorious life? That's what they're criticizing Paul for having too much suffering in his life. They're, they're rivals, not just against Paul. They're rivals to the gospel itself. They're undermining it. And so now Paul's kind of in this awkward position where he has to kind of boast, even though he doesn't want to, to kind of use their tactics against them, trying to help us understand in an ironic way that when we're in conflicts, we all kind of boast. Boasting here isn't just this idea of bragging. And we need to get past the idea of just bragging. What he means is identity. What he means is, what defines you? What makes you, you? Here's why this is important. When you're in a conflict, what you will do is not like subconsciously defend yourself. Because what you will do is you will find everything wrong with that individual and lift that up. And you will take everything that's good about you and lift that up. And that's why you can get into a conflict that attacks the other person. You defend yourself and you attack the other person. You boast. We do that. We make ourselves feel better. We build ourselves up to tear other people's down, even internally. And they're saying this verbally. Look at how good we are. Look how much suffering Paul has. By verse 12, it says, they're, they're leading this charge against Paul by comparing themselves by their own standards. Not that we dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. He's saying this ironically. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So basically what they're doing is they're using themselves as a standard. They're, def they're boasting because that's who they are. They're like, look how great we are. Look at our, our background, our resumes, our speaking ability, the base of people that follow us. That's what we all do when we're in conflict. We boast. We boast by comparison, right? He's saying, this is what they're doing. You, you usually try and find, especially the area of the other person you're in conflict with, where you are stronger than them and you go after that. Because you always compare to win. That's why always, you see this all the way down to young children. <laughs> we, we bought uh, a, a book when Malia was in kindergarten called The Smallest Kid in the Smallest Grade. Because <laughs> she literally was the smallest kid in the smallest grade. Uh, she's not going to get much genetic advantage from my wife and myself. But immediately, just kindergarten, you see another kid just point out, because this kid happened to just be taller than the, Malia, her shortness, even though this kid wasn't even all that, that tall. Because you're going to find someone to compare yourself, to build yourself up. And this is especially true in conflict, because you will internally try and make yourself better than you are. Right? And so you will find, you know, I have more academic success than this person. I've done this or that, or I've served longer in the church than this person. All kinds of ways we boast and build ourselves up and we tear others down. Here's how Paul says we should boast. Not by comparison. Look at verses 17 and 18. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is the one who commends himself, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. When you're in a conflict, when you are trying to correct, I think we need to have a healthy self-awareness of this internal dialogue where we both like kind of puff ourselves up. 
and really consider, how does Christ look at me at this moment? We commend ourselves, we commend ourselves with all kinds of ways, but it's ultimately possible that as we puff ourselves up, the, the, the only one whose opinion matters does not consider this conflict or our approach or the situation to honor him. Ultimately, what matters most is God and how he considers your heart. That's why I think when we are in the middle of a conflict, we should evaluate where we're boasting. And if you are tempted to consider yourself better than the other person, and we all have this kind of internal dialogue, then you're probably boasting not in the way that Christ looks at you, but you are doing that from your flesh to make yourself win in the argument. Church, what would it look like if in all the disagreements that we will have, individually, in our community groups, in our families, in the church, if we handle them with gentleness and meekness. If we didn't go after people, but we actually began to have the wisdom to see the things that are taking people away from Jesus. And we had this healthy self-awareness to see the ways that we maybe not do not have the opinion of God who commends us, but really are just boasting in ourselves. I think that would radically change the way that we dialogue, the way that we deal with conflict, it would change your parenting. It would change our leadership. It would change us. What would it look like if our church wasn't just an angry church when we saw the things in our culture, but we understood how to winsomely look at the strongholds? And that when we talk to people who we deeply disagree with, that when we're sitting with that person, we come with a servant heart like Christ but still a boldness for the sake of the gospel. I pray that the Holy Spirit would make us more like that. Would you pray with me? That's our prayer, Lord. That you would help us to imitate Paul because he is imitating Jesus. I pray now, Father, would your spirit soften the hard hearts that are here, that are insistent that they are right that are holding grudges or grasping at unforgiveness, would you free them? Would you give us gentleness and meekness? Father, help us to have wisdom. You, you, we, you promise as we ask for wisdom to give it. And so we, we need, we desperately need wisdom because we don't even see sometimes the strongholds that are leading people astray. We just go after the people. We, we miss the point entirely and then we lose the spiritual war that is taking place. Father, so pour out wisdom on us. Drive us to your word, not just for information, but for life. Father, may your spirit shape us to be a church that is salt and light that adds good flavor to the conflicts that exist in our culture, that preserves goodness and righteousness and justice, that shines a light on life and truth, that doesn't hide in the darkness, that doesn't use the methodologies of this world as we fight. Here we look to Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross for our salvation. May we not only cling to his salvation and his ways, may they begin to reshape us so we live in the way of Jesus. 
In his name we pray. Amen.